Welcome back again to BadQuaker.com podcast. This is podcast number 114 for Tuesday, March 6th, 2012. My name is Ben Stone. I'm going to cheat a little bit on today's podcast. And uh, and the reason why is uh, I've just had a real hard time recently collecting my thoughts and, and really keeping things straight in my mind. And I was listening to my podcast yesterday, and I was not real pleased with it. I just kind of wandered off, and uh, too many times I lost concentration on what I was trying to say, and it was a, a bit incoherent, um, or at least it wasn't as coherent as I would like for it to have been. So I, uh, I was uh, very disappointed in it. But um, just to give my excuse, uh, you know, if, if you're not familiar with everything that's gone on here uh, with the Bad Quaker um, uh, crew, our staff, I should say, we started out in the latter part of last year, we found out that my wife's mother uh, suddenly uh, ended up with uh, terminal cancer, and she went from being very healthy and very active and very vibrant and very alive to uh, to dead in a very short period of time, and it really shocked us. We weren't she's she's she wasn't that old, and we really weren't prepared to lose her. Uh, and and that happened July I'm, I'm sorry January seventh actually. Uh, and as we were just starting to get our feet back underneath us and start to get back into routines and everything. My daughter, Kai, who is normally my co-host on this podcast, uh, her husband died um, unex- unexpectedly and as at this point without explanation. Uh, John was a wonderful person, uh, left behind... Um, Kai, my daughter, and and four kids, and and it was really unexpected on all of us. And now this has been uh, we're coming on to the second week after losing John. Kai has uh, has uh, gone to ser- handled services and everything for him um, in his home state, and uh, going on to his mother's house and to do what has to be done down there. And uh, we really don't know uh, if she'll be back on the podcast in the future or not. We're going to have to wait and just see how she handles things when she comes back. And so, this, and this is my excuse, and I hate to dump all this on, on the listeners, uh, but just so that you'll know why if in the last few podcasts, if I've seen a little disjointed and scattered and so forth, this is the reasoning behind it. We're just uh, still trying to come to grips with everything that took place. And so I think I, I said earlier, I, I'm going to cheat on this podcast and I'm just going to talk uh, some about my family and, and some of the, um, some of the private information that, uh, uh, so that you'll kind of get an idea of who we are and, and some of the things that we've, uh, uh experienced and so forth. And so, really, uh, I should give a warning. This is not going to be your typical anarcho-capitalist libertarian rant of me tearing down some, you know, some statist or some uh, uh, somebody who's putting the veil of a libertarian onto themselves and saying things that are inappropriate. This, you know, I'm not going to be attacking anybody. I'm not going to be laying out any heavy philosophical thoughts or any, uh, you know, great uh, religious thinking or anything like that. It's just going to be. Uh, me and it might even be a very short podcast. Although usually when I say that, it ends up with me rambling for ten minutes over, and I have to cut it down and try to make it fit into the hour slot. But uh, we'll see how it goes. You know, um, I've mentioned a few times that uh, in my youth I was sort of a rough and tumble type of a person, and I didn't necessarily have much of a respect for the law. <laughs> That's amazing, huh? Um, and I have mentioned quite a few times that I, you know, ran black market businesses. I did collections for black market financing, uh, if we can put it that way and be tactful about it. And so I've had a couple people, uh, requested that, you know, or, or suggested, I should say that maybe I could talk about that a little bit and share some of my experiences and, uh, you know, raising the kids uh, in a very unorthodox way. My wife and I have three uh, adult kids now. Kai is the middle of the three. 
and um so we we raised them in a very unorthodox manner and they got to experience things that most kids don't uh, don't get to experience and it, uh, it you know it um i think it affected them in a positive manner and gave them a wider outlook in life than most uh, people their age have so yeah so let's uh, so this is kind of around the campfire tale telling so to speak and hopefully it won't be uh, uh too boring for everybody um, some of the things that uh, that I've commented on, like my number of concussions and the fact that I've been shot a couple times and um, attempted shootings a few times when people have wanted to kill me and weren't quite competent enough. So yeah, let's let's just it's kind of awkward trying to tell a story like that with nobody with no physical person in the room with you to actually tell the story to. And it's also, even if Kai were here with me, uh, it's, it's kind of awkward because she knows all these stories. So, um, and that, uh, I should mention that as well. Some of the things, uh, that I have experienced, especially when I was very young, but also some of the more latter things as well. I look back on them and I think, you know, if somebody told me that as a story at a campfire, I would assume they were lying because some of these things are just too too much to believe. But um, you know the the wonderful thing about uh, recording this like this and putting it out on the internet and and doing so not in an anonymous fashion, but using my real name and um, you know there are a lot of people out there who really know who I am, family members. This through the Liberty Radio Network, this is broadcast in uh, areas like Waverly, Ohio, where I have family members, and many of them know part or most or maybe even all of some of these stories. So um, so if I were to over-elaborate, or if I were to outright lie, or if I were to leave off critical things that, you know, that might make me look bad or something, if I were to do any of those things, uh, they would know it, and they, and they would bust me on it, and they would probably go right to the Bad, bad Quaker website and complain about my uh, lack of uh, <laughs> uh, forthrightness. But uh, so let's uh, okay. So uh, which should I go? Concussions or shoot or sh or gunshot wounds? <laughs> well, uh, I was just talking to my sister on the phone just a few minutes ago, just right before I started the podcast. And we were actually talking about concussions that my dad has received. My dad is quite elderly and in, uh, you know, has, he's struggled with health for a while. Although in ways he's pretty solid health wise, but in other ways he, he, he does struggle. He's, he's uh, had a pretty, uh, rough life as well. I could, I could talk about his, uh, oh my, uh, <laughs> He started out, I think he was about nine, if I recall, and I, I it could have been 11. The, the, there's two different stories that I get confused in my mind. So either at the age of nine or 11, one or the other, he um, found some blasting caps or what might be called dynamite caps, which is actually a, a cap that goes on the end of a dynamite stick and it causes a small explosion that ignites the dynamite. Now, when I say a small explosion, I'm talking like uh, maybe a quarter of the power of the actual dynamite itself. So it's still quite an explosion. And he found a, a cup of these blasting caps. I believe, they, if I recall the story, I believe there was three. And he and his cousins were in this old, uh, they were off exploring in the woods of Appalachia, and they found this cabin, and they, and it was an abandoned cabin, and the, you know, the door was, there was no door, or the door was broken down, or whatever, and so it was clearly abandoned, they weren't uh, trespassing, or, well, I suppose, in a sense they were, but this was the 1920s, so uh, they were exploring, that's what they were doing, they were exploring Appalachia. And they found this cup in this abandoned cabin, and it had these three objects in the cup. And my father mistook them for spent shotgun shells, because that's kind of what they look like. They look like a spent shotgun shell, because you just uh, it's hollow in the end, and you slide it right down on the end of the dynamite, and then uh, there's a... Uh, uh, a percussion point or an electronic point or whatever it's according to what kind of dynamite that they were but it was probably a fuse uh, type 
uh, where, where you would jam a fuse into the end of it. Anyway, um, one way or the other, there was this uh, brass cup, or uh, could have been copper, either copper or brass cup. And uh, the three blasting caps were in the cup. And my father thought that they were spent shotgun shells. Now, in those days, there were a lot of old black powder shotgun shells that you would find around the, that the old folks had had. And when you use black powder in a shotgun like that, um, oftentimes there's a residual black powder that doesn't ignite because black powder is not very efficient. Uh, and so you, if you find uh, an old black powder shotgun shell like that, you can just stick a match down into it and you'll get a quick flash. It won't blow up or anything. You just get a, just a, a quick flash. And so my father, thinking that he was holding a cup with three spent shotgun shells, lit a match and stuck it down in there, but he was actually holding three blasting caps. And the, uh, just in the instant before he shoved the match into the blasting caps, one of his cousins had stepped up and looked down into the cup. And fortunately, my father pushed him away right at the key moment. Otherwise, it probably would have taken his head right off. But he pushed him away, stuck the match into the cup. The three blasting caps exploded. It took my father's left hand almost entirely off. It turned the cup into tiny little shards of uh, little fragments and sent them in all kinds of directions, uh, including into one of my dad's eyes, including sort of splattering the hot uh, metal in tiny little pieces into uh, and all over his chest and downward into the floor and off into the other boys that were standing around to a lesser extent. Uh, but my father and his hand took the blunt of the explosion. Um, now, this is off in the mountains of Appalachia, and he was several miles from home. And with all the boys having some degree of injury, they all went in their own directions to try to get back home. One of my father's cousins tried to help my dad as much as possible. They were able to get him home where his mother you know, imagine a mother on a farm in Appalachia and her son just comes out of the woods and the majority of his hand is gone. Uh, and you can imagine the blood loss. And so she w got him as quick as possible, got him on a mule and headed towards the largest town that was nearby, which means, you know, the only place with a hospital. It means they had to ride the mule all the way to the Ohio border and then get a ferry ride across the Ohio River and to the, to the city of Portsmouth, Ohio, where there was the nearest hospital, which took most of the day. Uh, so that was, that was how my dad... Uh, <laughs> I started this off to talk about some of the injuries that I've went through, but I think I shared that mostly because whatever... Whatever I've faced in my life pales in comparison to uh, the struggle that my dad went through. Um, and, and yet he was, was in the sense that he, you know, has deteriorated quite a bit now. But in his prime, he was an amazing individual and a brilliant person. And uh, just uh, I, I could do a whole podcast just on my dad. But if I can thank my dad for anything at all, I would thank him for giving me a wonderful childhood and the experience of, uh, of not staying in one place. My dad loved to move from place to place, and he would be in one area for a year or two, and he would get bored with the work. He would get bored with whatever job or whatever business that he had opened, and he'd get the itch, and he'd want to get moving again, and he'd want to start all over, and then he'd go to a new place, and he would look around and maybe he'd invent a new thing or whatever. One time, one time, uh, we, he had a, a very successful construction business in Kentucky and it had grown and grown and we were really doing well. And he, uh, decided, you know, this would be a good time to move to California. And now we had already, I was born in California. So we had moved back and forth from Kentucky to California on several occasions. 
But on this occasion, we were probably in the best financial condition we'd been in quite some time. And so he just closes his business, packs up his equipment, and off we go uh, to California. And we and no uh, no you know prearrangement of any kind of uh, job or any kind of work or anything like that. We're just going to go and we'll figure out when we get there. And so off we go and we got to California and my dad looked around and took some time off and sort of thought things over and found uh, a a need for uh, for a machine that didn't exist yet. This was in the San Joaquin Valley in California. The uh, a lot of the ranchers and farmers there were beginning to uh, put in a, a more permanent crop. They had been planting a lot of cotton, and because of changes in the market, there were advantages to having a more permanent crop. So there were a lot of these farming companies that were that were tilling under their cotton fields, and they were planting um, almonds and uh, pistachios. And pistachios, this was uh, the mid-70s, and pistachios were a new thing on the market, and and uh, the public was really buying them up fast because they, it, was a, it was a novelty, and they're delicious. And uh, the only suppliers for pistachios were overseas. But the San Joaquin Valley is the perfect place to grow pistachios if you have a little bit of water. So uh, the farmers were plowing up their cotton fields and planting pistachios at a dramatic rate. The problem with this was that... Um, cotton carries uh, an, an illness that's called verticillium wilt, and it normally doesn't affect the cotton because before the verticillium wilt has a chance to have any serious effect on the cotton, the, since the cotton is a seasonal item, um, it, they spray it with defoliant, kill it, and harvest it. So the, the verticillium wilt never has an opportunity to really harm the cotton. So for this reason, the disease spread rapidly throughout the cotton fields, but nobody really took notice of it because they killed the cotton off every year before the harvest, and so they didn't realize that the cotton was infected. Or if they did realize, they didn't care because it didn't matter. But once they began investing millions and millions of dollars plowing up those cotton fields and planting pistachios, and now you have a problem because you've invested all this money in your cotton field, uh, changing it into a pistachio orchard, and there are pockets of this verticillium wilt that are inhabiting the soil about two feet, three feet down. And so as the young tree roots reach that two to three foot range in one season, they're dead. Now this is a huge investment that's just dying right in front of the farmers and right in front of the ranchers and and they had no way to combat it because in order to combat it there was a specific poison that had to be uh, placed into the soil down where the verticillium wilt was uh, in a essentially in a state of hibernation which was about the two to three foot down range now you could go through and deep plow with the poison and kill it but the problem was the poison is uh, very lethal. You can't let it get up where the workers are going to be working at because it'll kill the people that are applying it. Also, you can't really do a deep plowing in a field where you just planted an orchard. Um, so they had to find a way to kill the verticillium wilt without killing the, the, the healthy trees and without killing the workers that are spraying the poison. And there was no machine to do this with. So my dad uh, looked around and said, well, I can fix this. And so night after night, he began uh, just hanging out in a machine shop. He, he knew he had a good friend who had a machine shop in the city of Kalinga, California. So uh, we moved to Kalinga just for this purpose. And uh, at night when the machine shop closed, his friend would allow him full access to the machine shop. So I would go down there with my dad, and my dad would tinker and play around with ideas, and he was just a literally, he's, he's like a mad genius when it comes to a machine shop. And he invented this machine. Uh, so we, uh, now I say we, I was like 13 at the time, I believe. I, I think this was the summer before I was 14, or maybe it was the summer before, I think it was this, right around in that time frame, I'm not sure. Anyway, 
So uh, he would um, tinker at the at the shop, at the machine shop late at night, and I would spend a few hours with him, but I wouldn't stay down there the whole time. And then somewhere 10, 11 o'clock, something like that, I'd hop on my bicycle and ride home, and then he would tinker the night away and come home the next day. And he eventually invented this machine, and then he took it out into the fields and tested it, and it worked. It worked great. And the farmers were amazed, and, and money started rolling in from his new invention. And uh, it wasn't very long at all until I could tell that he was starting to get bored with this. Because he had already, you know, he, he was all into the hunt and the kill but he really didn't enjoy the feast. And this was kind of the signature of my dad in all the different jobs and all the challenges that he faced throughout his life. He loved the challenge. He loved the chase. And he loved the moment of victory when it, when it took place. But then afterwards, he immediately desired that chase again. So here we were with this machine, and we were making money with it. Uh, and... Then we ran into a little bit of opposition. It seemed that there was a chemical company that had an obscure uh, uh, patent, not on a machine, because they didn't have a functional machine, but they had a patent on the process of injecting this poison down deep into the ground, and that's what my dad's machine did. My dad had this uh, this machine that successfully... Um, pushed the, the, the poison down to the three-foot level and then held a couple thousand pounds of pressure on the hole as it extracted the, the injecting tool out. And it backfilled the hole and, and packed it down with a couple thousand pounds of pressure so that the poison couldn't get back uh, up out of the hole and kill the, uh, the people doing the applying. Uh, so this chemical company had this obscure patent, not on the machine, but on the process. And so they saw how much money my dad was making and how successful he was being. And so they pursued, uh, you know, their um, advantages. And rather than fight them, and my dad probably could have made a successful fight against them, but rather than fight them, he, he had already tired of it. So he basically just parked the machine and let Russ take it away. And that was, you know, I mean, he, he, he sought another challenge. At th this, I, this would probably be a real good time to break for a commercial because I'm at an awkward point where I just finished a story I had no intention of telling. So let's break for a commercial here and uh, we'll get right back with the, uh, with the rest of the rambling, nonsensical podcast with Campfire Stories right after this. How would you like to support BadQuaker.com and get something nice for yourself at the same time? I want to tell you about Survival Gear Bags. It's run by my friend Kelly, who believes in and adheres to the non-aggression principle. Kelly's customers know him for his great customer service and his personal touch because Kelly handles all customer service himself. The main focus of Survival Gear Bags is to allow you to build your own custom emergency kits with quality gear. Now I know this because I bought my bug out bag from Survival Gear Bags over two years ago and I've gone all over the country with it by my side. And you can rest assured that the prices will always be the best they can be at Survival Gear Bags. And if you use the link from badquaker.com, they'll probably throw in something for free for you with your order. Now how do you do this? Well, it's simple. You go to badquaker.com. On the right side of the page, click on the picture of the backpack. Then look around at Survival Gear Bags and find the stuff you want. You'll help badquaker.com and you'll support a merchant that's one of us. Now I want to tell you about another way you can support badquaker.com and get something really cool at the same time. Shire Silver. Shire Silver is the proud seller of silver and gold trade cards. Shire Silver believes that silver and gold trade cards will show the world a better way to save, spend, and share precious metals. So what are silver and gold trade cards? There are specific weights of gold and silver laminated inside credit card sized tradable cards. They're a handy and affordable way to trade precious metals. These cards received nationwide recognition when they were widely used as barter at the New Hampshire Porcupine Festival. You want a beer and a hot dog? Hand them a Shire Silver 5 card and get a Shire Silver 1 spot back as change. So again, what do you do? Well, you go to badquaker.com, 
On the right side, just below the backpack, you'll see the Shire Silver trade cards. Click on those cards and then check out Shire Silver's site. Be sure and watch Ron's video that's right there on the main page. And then swap some of those ridiculous Federal Reserve notes for something of real value. Something you can keep, trade, or give as the coolest gift ever. But be sure and use the link from BadQuaker.com. Thanks, folks. Well, thanks for sticking with me through the commercial. And be sure and get over to BadQuaker.com and uh, find the links to those, to uh, to Kelly's site there at Survival Gear Bags. And be sure and click the link uh, both to Survival Gear Bags and the one that goes to Shire Silver. And I really think if you check out uh, Shire Silver, you're just going to be amazed. It, it's such a cool thing. But anyway, okay, so the commercial's over. Um, all right, so uh, that that leads me. I was talking about my dad and how he had made this invention. And once the the copyright, I'm sorry, the patent uh, battle, uh, once the eve of the cop of the patent battle uh, was upon us, and my dad just said, "Well, you know, that's not the kind of thing that gave him a thrill. That was not he was not inventing anything. There's not a challenge to him. That's just that's legal mumbo jumbo, and he wasn't into that kind of thing. So he just parked the machine, and that was the end of it. And we moved way out into the middle of the um, of the Mojave Desert." on an old former working sheep ranch that was literally out in the middle of nowhere. It was completely off the grid. It had its own well. I think I can't remember now, but I think the well was like 350 feet deep or something in the basin of the Mojave Desert out there. And uh, so we had a good supply of water. And we had, uh, you know, my, my dad always tried to have generators and backup generators and backups to the backups. And he, we were into that kind of thing a long time ago. Uh, so, of course, my dad had generators and he had uh, uh, huge propane tanks to supply. Uh, we had propane lights throughout the whole house. And it was a huge house. This was a formerly a, a, a working sheep ranch from the 1920s probably built in two phases around 1910 and again in about 1920 or so so this was a huge uh former working ranch the kitchen uh of this building was probably i'm gonna say it was probably 25 feet wide by 35 feet long the kitchen the kitchen had two sinks two stoves two refrigerators um, you know, it was set up to feed a, a working crew. The dining room in this house was massive with a big fireplace. And um, so anyway, so we moved out there into the middle of the desert off grid. Um, and my dad started planting his own pistachio trees and his own almond trees. And we had a nice little place out there uh, for several years. And my dad really liked it. Uh, my mom wasn't crazy about being completely off grid, no phone, no electricity, no communications. No, t we had, we had television when, when, uh, my dad would start the generators in the evening and make sure that all the batteries were up and everything like this. And so we had uh, television for a few hours in the evenings and that helped my mom tolerate everything. Um, and then eventually my dad got a small battery-operated television, and that, that lightened her days a little bit. But, you know, after a while, um, the fun of living out there off-grid and everything uh, started to become boring to my dad. It, it, but he still loved it. He had his airplane out there. My dad was a, was a barnstormer pilot, never licensed. For years and years and years he flew and owned I don't know how many airplanes, lots of airplanes, and never once went and got his license because, um, you know, why, why would he need to ask the government's permission to fly in the air? I mean, how can the government own the air, right? So you see how, well, okay. Anyway, so my dad had his own landing strip out there in the desert. He could fly uh, out. He was out there with his airplane. He could fly. He could come back. He could land. He could do... Everything he wanted to do in total freedom, and he just loved it. But after a while, it did the the appeal started to wear, and my mom really didn't like the isolation and everything. And so, with enough time and enough pressure, he came into town and you know got a real job and so forth like that. And now about this time, 
I had uh, I was experiencing a little bit of uh, a, a little bit of the rebel blood going through me, you know. And uh, so, in, in no matter that my parents had put a lot of effort into raising me morally, and uh, you know, I knew all the Bible stories, and we had gone to church for years, and everything like that. Still, I had this wild streak in me, and I liked to, even when I was very young, 14, 15 years old, I would sneak away from the house at night and go into town and, you know, uh, play pool at the bar. And uh, in those days, it was a lot different than now. This was, again, this was mid-70s, and I could go into a bar uh, where I knew the bartender, and I, they knew that I wasn't going to cause trouble. They knew I wasn't going to attempt to drink or anything. I'm just going to be in there playing pool, maybe helping clean. You know, I could, I would help out the bartender a little bit, uh, kind of make a place for myself. Uh, you know, there's a scripture that says, uh, a, a wise man, uh, no, I'm sorry, it says, uh, a man's gift makes makes a place for him. And that's kind of the philosophy I had when I would go to, and there were a couple of different bars that I would go to, but when I would go, I would help clean glasses and I would help bus tables and I would do these kind of things um, to help out the bartender a little bit. And then I would get to play some pool. And so I got pretty good with pool. Well, by the time we moved out into the desert, that that all ended because, you know, there was no, <laughs> there was nothing anywhere near that I could have gone to to uh, have that kind of entertainment. So uh, instead, I made friends with a lot of bikers that were out in the desert. There was uh, the Mojave Desert is sort of open territory. It's not really um, it's not really owned by any particular biker club. Um, the the northern in nor most of northern California and most of the San Joaquin Valley. There's a couple clubs that are pretty strong. The Hells Angels uh, have their areas that they control, and there's some smaller clubs as well. And then this was, again, by this time it, we're talking late 70s. So the Mongols were, uh, the Mongols were pretty strong. Mon that was an inside joke, sorry, a slip of the tongue. Um, the Mongols were pretty strong in Southern California, and they were real strong in the Mojave Desert, but they didn't really see it as their territory so much as it was just a, a fun place. It was a good stomping ground. So I, I got pretty friendly with quite a few of them and never had anything against the Hells Angels. I just, my, I have a cousin that's, that was very active with them at the time. And so I had no, no beef with them or anything, but there just weren't a lot of them in that area uh, of the Mojave. So, uh, you know, maybe the crowd I was hanging with wasn't the greatest, but I also had friends that were my age and that were just, uh, you know, 16, 17-year-old high school-type guys that we were hanging around and doing all kinds of goofy things. And uh, I got a job in a gas station, and uh, that gave sort of the appearance of legitimacy to the other adventures that I started getting into. And eventually, I took the remnants of my dad's construction company. He still owned a lot of the equipment. And I began doing construction work. By this time, we're talking I was like 17. So I was on and off working at the gas station, on and off uh, running a, a small construction company with the help of my dad. And at the same time, I was slowly building a... Uh, a private business, a black market business, selling, buying and selling uh, items that the state had decided uh, that were forbidden. And in addition to this, and because of my relationship with different ones of these bikers, uh, they uh, part of the services that they provide to their people is uh, underground finances. And these are people who can't go to a bank or they don't have good credit or whatever the reason is that they could not do business in a legitimate fashion, but they still needed, uh, you know, banking. They still needed loans. They still needed, they, the cars would break down. They'd need some quick cash and they're good, you know, uh, to, to pay for it. They just needed some help. And that's where these bikers would help out in situations like that. And of course, there was, you know, they, they would earn uh, uh, a usury for that, uh, but it was never anything crazy. There was never, it's not like the movies. There was not, it, it was not abusive. It, it was a service. It really was a service. On the other hand, 
we didn't have the advantages that banks have when it comes to collections. So if someone had utilized the services of my biker friends and then uh, was unable to pay, then rather than send out, like in the movies, rather than send out some thug to get nasty with somebody, well, that doesn't really work. If you hurt somebody who owes you money, then they don't work and then they don't earn any more money and then they don't pay you. So, so that's illogical. That's, that's, a, that's a Hollywood fantasy. So rather than have the appearance of you know violence or something like that, they would often send someone like me, uh, again, I'm like 17, 18 at the time, and I would go out and I would do the collections and I would get a small percentage of, of what I would collect for, for the guys. And this prevented them from having to go out and, and you know, make it perhaps more dramatic than it needed to be. Um, but then there was always the fallback. If I had a problem, I could always, you know, let the right people know and they would escalate the situation as need be. Now, this caused, well, maybe, all right, yeah, the truth. I was, pro I probably took this responsibility uh, I, I allowed it to go to my ego a little bit more than I should have, perhaps. Uh, not all of my friends were into this kind of... Well, actually, very few of my friends were into that aspect of, of our business, of what we were doing. All of us were buying and selling uh, products uh, you know, of the time. But um, very few of them were actually doing the collections like I was. That was, uh, you know, there we didn't need a lot of people to do that. So... Um, but there were situations where either myself or one of the other guys would go out and we'd collect some money and, you know, drop it off and or move money. Sometimes you're just carrying it from one location to the other. Uh, there's reasons for these things. So um, anyway, so I was probably, my ego was probably puffed up a little bit more than it should have been. Um, I went to one guy's house once and... Uh, he had been dodging me. Uh, I had actually taken his debt on myself. Um, when, when the, when the guy that the money was owed to, when he approached me and said, Hey, can you do this collection for me? I said, Hey, I know that guy. You know, I've, I've done business with him before. And so, um, I took the debt on myself. I paid his debt. And therefore, now the debt is owed to me. So I went, I tried for several weeks to connect with this guy, and he kept dodging me, and he kept dodging me. And so one night, a friend of mine um, uh, <laughs> and I were out very late, and we had perhaps uh, been partying a little bit too heavy, and I probably shouldn't have been trying to do business that particular night. And I mentioned to my friend, hey, you know, that jerk's been hiding from me and dodging me every time he gets a chance. I need to catch him sometime and, and really, uh, you know, have a discussion with him about this. And so my friend is like, let's go now. Let's just do it. And one thing led to the other, and we uh, got overly aggressive in our collection of, uh, of this particular debt. And I admit that. We, we got overly aggressive. We approached his, uh, he lived in a duplex, and a single-story duplex in one of the desert towns there in the Mojave Desert. And we approached his uh, home pretty late at night, I'm not sure what time. And as we walked up his driveway, a lot of the homes in the desert out there have uh, uh, the landscape. They don't use grass a lot in the desert. There's a lot of rocks and a lot of, uh, you know, decorative rock of different kinds. So as we're walking by uh, this guy's car, and he took a lot of pride in his car, um, I just picked up a big, big decorative rock there and smashed his uh, one of his headlights and then put the rock through his bedroom window and yelled in at him and threatened him a little bit, and he came right up with the cash. And so that was over with. And that was very much an overreaction on my part. So some time went by, I think, oh, it might have been a couple of weeks. And uh, a different day came along, and it was fairly late in the day. I had been uh, partying pretty heavy all day. So a friend of mine was driving, and I was in his car sitting in the passenger's seat, in the front and the passenger seat. And I had another friend behind me in the, in the back of the car. 
and uh, we were in the parking lot of a uh, of a Shakey's Pizza out there in the in one of the small desert towns. And the my, the the driver of the, of the car that I was in um, had his foot on the brake. It was an automatic. He had a, his foot on the brake. It was a highly customized car. We'll we'll put it that way. So so it was fairly loud. The rumble of the pipes was fairly loud. So he's sitting there in gear with his foot on the brake, and we we're starting to pull out of the parking lot. And this guy comes running at, at the driver's side of the car, yelling for him, for the driver, uh, in a very friendly manner, like, hey, hey, hey. So uh, the driver, uh, you know, I, I suppose I could use his name. He's passed away now. He's been dead for like 30 years. So I, I suppose I can tell tales with him. So my friend Avery was the driver. And so, uh, so Avery uh, puts the brakes back on and stops to see what the guy's talking about. And as the guy approaches Avery and is kind of approaching slow, but doing a lot of talking and a lot of joking around and smiling and laughing and everything, um, this drew all of our attention towards the guy who's walking towards Avery's driver window. And while this is happening, un, uh, all of a, with all of us unaware of this going on, a different person is approaching from the other side of the car, and that's the guy that I had gone over and made the unnecessarily rough collection from a, a, a week or two earlier. And so he's approaching very rapidly from the passenger side of the car while his friend is distracting us on the driver's side of the car. And uh, I'm sitting there in the passenger's seat with the window rolled down and my arm up on the side of the, this was a, um, Avery's car was a uh, 65, I believe, 64 or a 65 um, Ford Falcon. I believe it was a 65 because I think 64 was the more rounded version and his, I believe, was the choppier square version. Anyway, not the point. Um, so I'm sitting there, uh, three sheets into the wind, as they say, and my arm is up on the side of the, of the, uh, car where the, you know, where the window rolls down my hand, my arms up there on the car door. And, uh, I'm leaning back with my head about halfway stuck out the window, but I'm looking towards the driver's side where the gentleman is approaching. And uh, the guy behind me in the back seat yells at me, uh, and I sort of turn my head and I see a gun just inches away from my face. And I have just, I'm batting my right hand up. Uh, my right hand was laying down where the window rolls up and down. And I bat my hand towards the gun. And fortunately for me, the shooter uh, was unaccustomed to such activities. He had placed the pistol where he wanted it that would have put the bullet right in the, behind my ear. But as he pulled the trigger, he turned his head and closed his eyes. And, and as he pulled his head the other direction, and I know this because the guy sitting in the back later described this to me exactly, and it matched partly what I remember seeing as the moments went by in unbelievable slow motion. But as he pulled the trigger, he turned his head so that either so he didn't have to see what was about to happen or maybe he was afraid of getting splattered. I'm not sure exactly why he turned his head, but he squinted his eyes super hard and turned his head as he pulled the trigger. And that threw his arm off as he moved his head like that. It moved his arm and his aim came directly in line with my hand that was coming up batting at the gun. And so the moment that the gun fired, the back of my hand was about an inch and a half or two inches away from the barrel of his gun. And the muzzle flash cooked a spot on the back of my hand about a two inch circle. Well, not quite two inches, probably an inch and a half circle. Just absolutely cooked the meat on the back of my hand. The bullet passed directly through my right hand between my, uh, if you look at your index finger and you look at your index knuckle, and then you can trace the bone going back towards your wrist. 
the bullet passed between that bone and through the muscular part between that bone and the thumb bone, passed right through my hand, came out through the palm of my hand, shot down, hit the dash of the car, of, the, of Avery's car, shattered. Part of the bullet went into the dash uh, in two different places, and part of the bullet went into Avery's knee. Now, Avery, that, that foot was holding the brake down, and when that fragment of that bullet hit Avery's knee, um, he, his reaction was to yank his foot up off the brake and stomp on the gas, which lit the rear end of that Falcon up. Now, we were on a gravel parking lot. Uh, Shakey's at that time and in that place had a big gravel parking lot. And so when Avery stomped on the gas, it spray, it probably sprayed those two guys with rocks worse than the injuries that we took from the bullet. But, uh, but Avery peeled out of there and we took off and we got to a safe house as quick as possible. Um, he didn't, he didn't realize at first that I'd been hit. I didn't realize at first that he'd been hit. Uh, my ear, because the gun had just been a couple inches from my right ear, my right ear was totally deaf, and I had this nice little hole through my right hand. But that wasn't the problem. The problem was that the meat on the back of my hand was cooked from the muzzle flash. So um, so now, you know, the cleaning process began. So, oh boy, the cleaning process. So I stayed at the, uh, well, I, they, they kind of wouldn't let me leave the safe house. They... Uh, uh, they uh, insisted that I stay uh, for a while, and I stayed there, I guess, a couple weeks, probably. I'm not sure, but probably around a couple weeks that I stayed there. They, w I wasn't, you know, I was, I wouldn't, I shouldn't say they wouldn't let me. I should say that they had very strong advice and I was not in a position to question their advice. Uh, they, it was their business, and they knew what they were doing. And when I say they, they were, uh, you know, they were Mongols, um, the bike uh, bikers. <laughs> um, Avery didn't stay. Avery stayed that night, and they cleaned up the his his scratch on his knee. It, it didn't really uh, hurt him that bad. It didn't penetrate very bad, but uh, they cleaned that up. But um, but they strongly encouraged me not to go anywhere. So I took that advice. And um, I never, they strongly urged me not to seek any retribution over that, which I followed that advice and I never sought any retribution. Now, on the other hand, um, there was a gentleman named Juan who was, uh, shall we say, a, a mutual friend of all of us. And... Uh, one, uh, the, the situation escalated because of this and one ended up catching the guy. Um, the guy was just walking down the street and one saw him and pulled his car up in front of him, jumped out, grabbed a, there was a board fence there. Juan grabbed a board off the board fence and just wailed on this guy and just beat him. Not, not beating him in a sense of trying to kill him, but uh, in a punishment sense. But that didn't solve the problem, of course. Uh, then, <laughs> then a few weeks later, Juan was really drunk in a bar, and this same guy and his other friend who had distracted Avery, uh, that guy, <laughs> those two guys caught Juan and threw him through a plate glass window. So this just continued going, and this is all because of my foolishness of uh, being uh, overly exuberant in my collection duties. So uh, I took some heat over that and, and learned my lesson from it. But um, either way, uh, oh, we've got Nikki barking now, so we're going to have to pause for a minute. So that was the great adventure of, uh, of one of the times that I was shot, and that was entirely my fault. Uh, I shouldn't have, uh, none of that could have, uh, all of that could have been avoided. None of it had to happen. So I learned a tremendous lesson from that, and... Uh, um, and I was a better collection agent because of it and a better businessman in general. Uh, and I learned a little bit about a, a lesson in humility. Um, 
Uh, and also, it took me quite some time to get hearing back in my right ear. It's still not quite right, but I had another another uh, explosion that affected my right ear much later, and I think it was even worse uh, that, that caused permanent damage to the right ear. But but that wasn't a gunshot. That was a uh, electrical box explosion. But And that's not anywhere near as fun or dramatic a story. It's a lot more boring in a chemical plant with a box exploding and you know but anyway um so that's my that's a story of my uh the first time that i was actually shot like that or shot period first time i was shot how do you say it you can't say it uh in a comfortable way or in a casual way but uh but it wasn't the first time that a gun was pulled on me and it wasn't the first time someone tried to shoot me so maybe another time uh we're we're not really to our time limit yet, but um, uh, I think maybe enough rambling for one podcast. And, and certainly it's kind of awkward, you know, telling these stories, just sitting here looking at a microphone and and uh, just telling the stories like this. Because, especially when they don't really have a point, you know. Uh, it's not like I can say, therefore the state is evil or or whatever. Well, I guess in a sense I could. We wouldn't have been having any of those black market activities if a free banking and free market would have been available. So, you know, uh, I, I could put it that way. The, the violence inherent in that system was because of the violence inherent in the state system. So, yeah, so we can blame it on the state. That's what we can do. Okay, so I, I am sorry that this is a short podcast, but... Uh, you know, like I said, this is kind of just an, uh, an opportunity for me to just clear my mind and talk a little bit and ramble and not really have a big purpose. I, I wanted, actually, I did have uh, a thing up. I wanted to talk about a guy named John Woolman. He was a, an early Quaker back in the uh, 1700s, and I had actually hoped that I would, uh, I, I, I had planned to tell a little bit of my own story, and then I thought I'd run out of time, and I thought, uh, no, I, I said that backwards. I, I thought I would have a lot of time left over, and therefore I would need something to fill it in. So I was going to talk, uh, I was going to give a teaser about John Woolman because uh, I want to do a whole podcast just on John Woolman. He, the more I'm, uh, one of my Facebook friends uh, pointed him out to me, and I knew the name was familiar because I'd read a plaque, one of these historical plaques about him years ago, but I had no idea this guy is so fascinating. So, uh, so there's the tease about John Woolman. Uh, I, I want to put together a whole podcast on him, and if I did a whole podcast on just completely on him, it wouldn't do it wouldn't do him service. He he was an amazing individual. Well, anyway, um, thanks very much for listening to the podcast today, and uh, thanks for your patience with my family and uh, with me in tolerating us and and uh, and listening to us even when we weren't as coherent as we could have been, and with some inconsistencies of missing some podcasts and so forth. Thank you very much for more on liberty, the zero aggression principle, and property rights. Go to badquaker.com, and thank you very much, folks. <laughs>